You're listening to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Jeff Steppen, your host. And today we're going to be talking teletherapy. Welcome back to another edition of the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. Today on the show, I'm happy to welcome Kristen Martinez, a speech-language pathologist who received her master's from the University of Colorado at Boulder and has been a speech-language pathologist for 19 years. Kristen has served students in her local school district as well as in private practice for 13 years before starting as a telepractitioner with Presence Learning in 2013. Kristen has presented on the topic of teletherapy nationwide and currently serves as the head of clinical standards and outreach for Presence Learning. In today's episode, we talk about how Kristen came to teletherapy in the first place. We talk, of course, about licensure issues, reimbursement, as well as all of the basic questions that I've always had about doing teletherapy. So without further ado, here's Kristen Martinez. Thanks for being on the show, first of all. Um, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to start off with uh, just a little bit of bio. I actually read a blog post that you posted recently on speechtherapypd.com. Um, oh, yes. It's the first of a por- four-part series. Um, right. Have you published a second one yet as of this recording? I, I only saw the one article up so far. Yeah, so that was that was just recently within the last couple of weeks published. So I believe the second okay. is scheduled early November. Early November. Okay. Or late, late October, somewhere in there. Yeah. So it's kind of nice because then in that first article, you kind of lay out the groundwork, which is some of what we'll be talking about tonight, um, about telepractice. Great. Now, I noted in that uh, blog piece that you mentioned, so you're an SLP for about 20 years. Uh, that sounds yes. right. Um, mm-hmm. I know you've worked in the schools. I think I read 13 years. Right. Um, and then you did some private practice. And then eventually you came to telepractice. And let's start there. How did that uh, spark begin? Right. So, yeah, so I was about 13 years as an on-site SLP in my local school district, and I really stepped away because there was some things going on with my family. I needed to have more flexibility, just some time um, to be able to, you know, devote to my family at the time. So I took, took a leave and Explored teletherapy, um, had looked into presence learning a little bit. It was really very new. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't know of anybody who was doing teletherapy at that point, but I obviously saw it as something that I could do from home, part-time, would have some flexibility. So it really was, um, at the time, I thought would be a stopgap between my district position, um, that it would be temporary most likely, and that I would be returning to my school district position. Um, but I had my first assignment, my first caseload of students, Mm -hmm. and it was not very long, a few weeks, I think, into beginning teletherapy and working with my students that I was just blown away. And I really, fell in love with 
providing services this way. And, and really, you know, I mean, I, I work, I have a great school district here. I'm very lucky. Um, we have not insane caseloads. So I really couldn't complain other than I think some of the things we all experience having multiple buildings and commute time and, you know, mm-hmm. bus duty and this duty and, you know, all of those things. But overall, really, you know, I, I had no complaints, but it, it really wasn't until I think I stepped away from that and started doing teletherapy that I realized how divided my attention and time had been away from really what my job was being a speech language pathologist Yeah, because I started with my caseload and suddenly I, I was, it was really exciting and I felt quite re-energized in my career, I think, mm-hmm. and focused as an SLP because that's all I was doing. I was providing therapy. I was doing evaluations, writing reports, um, still working with parents, still working with teachers. I actually felt like I had some time to, if I had a, a tough student and I wanted to do some research and some reading about um, a different approach, I felt like I had a little time to do that <laughs> rather, mm-hmm. rather than it piling up and coming over the summer break. So it, so that was really, yeah, from that night, that was 2013 and I've been part of Presence Learning ever since. So so you began and, and you've been with Presence this entire time. Um, I have. Your, your first uh, caseload when you first began, was that with students in a school district? It was, yes. So Presence Learning contracts exclusively with school districts. Oh. Um, early, actually early on when I was working with PL, um, we did ha- do some private practice. So I actually had a mix of mostly working directly with school districts, but I did have a few private practice students where I would, Mm -hmm. they would be home and I would be working with them. Okay. Now I I would imagine that the first time you ever donned a headset and the microphone and the setup, you must, I mean, I I'd be nervous. Uh, Mm -hmm. What was the first week? What was the first (laughs) week like for you? Um, Well, first of all, I was nervous because I have never considered myself a tech person in any way. Um, I was, you know, I remember being in grad school. I went to CU in Boulder and one of the opportunities we had was a summer we spent, we had to spend a week at the Easter Seals camp in Idaho Springs, um, which was really exciting, a great opportunity. But I remember being really nervous because I didn't feel like I was very strong at that point with AAC. I was sure all my classmates were going to be, you know, my, my camper, I felt like was going to have the, the short end of the stick getting me, um, <laughs> cause I was just nervous about the tech part yeah. and programming and it was still pretty new to me. And so, but it ended up being a wonderful week and, um, I learned so much, but now 20 years later to actually, to be part of something that really is at the forefront of our field in terms of leveraging the best in technology. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of funny sometimes (laughs) to me, but, um, but obviously I'm not, I'm not the person fortunately who is developing the technology and all of that. I just, I get to take advantage of it and use it and, um, help other therapists Mm -hmm. utilize this technology. So yes, I was nervous about that piece, um, Mm -hmm. how that would, 
I think the, the, what I was most nervous about really was beyond just the first day jitters of, is this actually going to work? Is something going to happen? And I won't know how, you know, what to do about it. Yeah. Really was would I connect with my students? Yeah. Um, I was concerned about that piece. Would I feel, would I get to know them? Would they get to know me? Mm-hmm. Would I have that bond with my kids? Um, and that very quickly, that concern went away. Um, I still got to know my students and, you know, they, we, we are working with a generation, uh, they're digital natives and sure. it is not an odd thing for them to be talking like we are now and to be interfacing on video. And, you know, my daughter comes home from school and she doesn't make a phone call. She FaceTimes her friends that yeah. she just saw five minutes ago. And so that's, it's just, it's not a leap for most of our students. Yeah. They, um, they say just as an average, yeah. An average uh, yeah. face-to-face <laughs> uh, it is, interaction. It is. Uh-huh. Um, now, so you're in Colorado. Where were your first students located? Okay. Um, so my first students were actually in Colorado. They were just in a different town. So oh, okay. they happened to be three hours away from mm-hmm. where I live. But then I pretty soon after that was asked to cross license into Oregon. Mm-hmm. So I then started working with students in Oregon and then in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was cross-licensed into Washington and Texas. So Now, this is um, where, when telepractice first became the big thing, I, I think it first landed on my radar around 2013, 2014, is mm-hmm. when I started to take mm-hmm. notice of it more. Um, right. And, you know, I, I, the first thoughts I, I had were, my, I mean, unless you were, unless you were stu- serving students in your state, what a nightmare mm-hmm. would be to try and keep up with all the licensure laws uh, from state to state. I mean, maybe you can comment a little bit about that. And I suppose it's sure. beneficial work for a larger company like Presence that can, that has a whole team, I'm sure, devoted towards all the legal legalities and then making sure that the right. therapists are, are credentialed and, and licensed in the various states. So yeah, talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it is, it's definitely a challenge. I see it as both um, the privilege of teletherapy and a bit of the burden of teletherapy is that piece, is just the cross-licensure. Now, some states are pretty easy to cross-license into. Um, It can be a matter of two or three weeks. It's really just making sure you get your letter from ASHA, saying that you're in good standing with ASHA, Mm -hmm. a, a letter from any other states where you are already licensed. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy process. Others are much more difficult. So mm. uh, some, some states, of course, require uh, Department of Education licenses on top of state SLP licenses. So that can be challenging depending on those requirements. Yeah. Um, and some of those are changed. Some, some of the regulations are changing around that. Of course, there's um, work being done even through, I think, by ASHA in some to to look at you know, reciprocity or yeah, changing that was, so it's not so difficult. Yeah, I, I, I had two thoughts uh, when thinking about this uh, conversation we we're going to have. One, you know, because the licensure, licensure is, is the first thing that sort of came up in, in certification mm-hmm. as I was thinking about this years ago. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if they just had a blanket federal law allowing for reciprocity? 
Um, I, mm-hmm. I think just we, I mean, obviously the face to face encounters would remain the same. You would need state licensure, but if you wanted, you know, f- right. someone for myself, some from Illinois, if I wanted to reach out and work with someone in California, that there wouldn't be this red tape, you know, that mm-hmm. I would that it would just be a seamless trans uh, uh, contractual you know agreement. I'm licensed mm-hmm. in Illinois. There's an automatic agreement that. If you're, if you're licensed, at least in your home state, there should be some type of reciprocity. And I mean, because right. the, the other issue is, of course, the different fees involved. Um, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to be mm-hmm. licensed in all 50 states, I couldn't even imagine how much that would cost. Um, no. And I wouldn't recommend trying to license in 50 yeah. states. That would be a lot. But um, yeah, you know, I think that I, what, what Asha specifically, um, or at least a the segment advocacy group of ASHA is working on is creating an interstate compact um, where there, you know, and it really has to be a state by state agreement. Um, Of course, in there's many things where every state has, you know, they like to have state level control, you know, understandably. And so that's certainly what we're dealing with when talking about those compacts, Mm -hmm. but it's, absolutely a discussion because it is, you know, especially where we are now having chronic shortages of Mm -hmm. SLPs, OTs, school psychologists in the schools. It is creating more of a barrier for students to receive services to make the cross licensure so difficult. So it is, it is something to consider. Um, we we do. I, I am fortunate at Presence Learning to have a lot of support with that. We've been doing it for quite a while now. So we we do know how, how to help providers navigate that. Yeah. However, things are always changing, too. <laughs> so it's, That's right. it's a lot <laughs> to stay on top of um, and make sure that we have, you know, the best information. But there are certainly some, we you know, we do see things that don't make a lot of sense necessarily, but right. the requirements. And so for now, that's that's what we need to follow. And I have to say, um, I think we this, do our best. Yeah, I think this segues nicely into just the history of, of teletherapy and where things will probably mm-hmm. go. I just think the very weight of it, and I'm sure you probably can cite uh, better than I can, just the, the kind of uh, growth it's had over the last, you know, say 10 years. And mm-hmm. I, I would think that my guess is that a lot of that would just be attributed to again either shortages number one, but b technology that um, yes. it's becoming cheaper and more commonplace. We all have smartphones, uh, broadband uh, internet connections are more the norm than not uh, in many parts of the country. Um, mm-hmm. And then just around the corner, we have five G coming. Um, mm-hmm. Within five years, right. I'm sure the connections will be absolutely seamless. You will be able to talk to someone. Right um across the country and it'll be as if i'm talking to you right here and there'll be no lapse we won't we mm-hmm. won't you know understandably won't have any um hopefully dropped calls or technical uh, issues like we do with the current standards so um right. yeah maybe you can speak about the rise and the growth um mm-hmm. and the continued potential for this stuff yes it it really is exciting and to, to have been part of this even since I joined in 2013, uh, you know, now understanding a little bit more of the history, t- you know, telepractice, telemedicine has been a wa- been around in some iteration for decades, a long time, really. Um, but in the very early stages, it was, you know, there was actually, you know, they even they even go back to 
you know, written correspondence and sending mm. information, medical information than by phone. Um, it came to rise even more prominently earlier than in the U.S. and Australia, for instance. There's uh, quite a history in Australia because of the rural nature of so much of the population and mm -hmm. needing to get medical care and services. So a lot was developed there, but really where we are now, when, when I'm talking about teletherapy, the current gold standard, we're talking about synchronous live video teletherapy yeah, um, as opposed to what is called store and forward or asynchronous where something is recorded and then actually sent to the student to the um, patient and then the, you know, they receive the information there. So that's been a piece of education as we have grown for parents, for schools to understand that it is live. It is a therapist here actually mm -hmm. working directly in real time with your, with your child. Um, not a recording, not, mm -hmm. you know, they're not sitting and just watching a video. It's, it's a therapy session. So yeah, there absolutely the technology has of course contributed to growth, um, changing regulations, allowing teletherapy for school-based services in the, across disciplines. And that still varies. Um, there are mm -hmm. still some air, some states where it is essentially, we're not able to provide services, but we're seeing a lot of changes happening at the state level and regulations. Mm -hmm. um, and another piece is the Medicaid following along behind that. So reimbursement for services. Right. Yeah. So, um, just to touch on that, I mean, I work in a school. I know I'm required to do Medicaid service uh, billing. Mm -hmm. Now, it, is this something that is reimbursable under Medicaid? It is. It's state by state and state discipline by, state. by discipline. So, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. and and also within. So, for instance, Idaho is one state where teletherapy services are reimbursable uh, for the therapy sessions themselves, mm -hmm. but not not yet for evaluations. Okay. So sometimes there's a, that difference. So it's very much state by state right now. And we keep, we keep watching those regulations and mm -hmm. um, trying to, you know, talk with people. There's a lot of debate in, uh, you know, between legislature, le legislators and professionals, because again, it is another barrier when there are students, children going either non-served or underserved because of, you know, shortages that we're seeing in every state across the country. Right, right. Now, um, I know because presence learning uh, services, uh, primarily school districts, do you, would you know about what the state of private insurance is for uh, work with private clients at this point? Uh, is it, again, insurance company by insurance company, state by state kind of thing? Um, it is, I do believe that somewhere around 37 states, 35, 37 states, I think, have parity laws mm. that do mandate reimbursement for telemedicine, um, teletherapy services, if the same service is covered otherwise. Okay. Um, so I, I am, I'm not the expert in the private pay yeah. area, but that's my, that's my general understanding that it, it, it is state by state, but um, that's 
it's it's coming along as well. That's actually more encouraging than I thought you would. I, <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's a minority of insurance companies and a minority of places under very str- uh, stringent uh, circumstances. But no, that's that's actually good to hear. Now, I, I think that because obviously it's not just speech pathology, but it's all sorts of other yeah. disciplines. That I think the weight of teletherapy is just going to propel the for- the field forward. Um, and right. I'm, I'm sure as it becomes more of a force, of course, um, there'll be better lobbying efforts at the federal and state levels. So, um, right. yeah, I see nothing but just uh, growth for this area. Um, now, obviously, um, yeah, it's funny, we were talking um, pr- leading up to this uh, podcast about the conditions of recording. And I was recommending that, you know, you'd be in a quiet area, quiet room. And I, I heard a lot of the same um a uh, piece of advice uh, written in your blog piece so that you want, mm-hmm. and I, and in going back to the beginning, I think that you would want the student in a quiet, um, uh, best acoustic environment as possible, as well as yourself to create that um, intimate bond. Um, I think, right. I think having them perhaps like in a corner of a loud classroom probably wouldn't uh, be an ideal situation, but at, at least mm-hmm. on the side of the students, do you find that uh, teachers and schools are able to accommodate that? And, and find spaces for these students to have some privacy and, and work? Right. Um, I, I do. It's, I mean, I, I, I'm sure, as you know, being a school-based therapist, there's often space challenges in the schools. Yeah. Even if you're there in person, it can be hard to find a great location. So I would say that there's, it doesn't have to look like, you know, a separate room, you know, the door shut. Right. Um, that can happen. That's great. Whether you're there in person as an SLP or via teletherapy. Um, but we do have situations where it's not uncommon at all for us to be in, for instance, the computer to be set up in the room where an SLPA is also running a small group, um, in that room and they might have a divider, a visual divider. Um, yeah. Yeah. And honestly the, you know, the quality of headsets Mm -hmm. is, vastly improved for, you know, you can get a pretty good headset that blocks noise for not, doesn't have to be too expensive anymore. Oh, sure. yeah, so yeah. That's another piece that's contributing to just the quality of teletherapy is that that's that sort of technology as well. Yeah. Um, so we, we make it work in a lot of different situations uh-huh. and if, you know, and the schools certainly do everything they can to to accommodate and make it so that it is successful for their students. Okay. Now, um, on, on the subject of that uh, therapist-to-client uh, contact, I the other thing that always jumped out to me when thinking about teletherapy is that it, it, it theoretically sounds like it would be easier to do language therapy than articulation therapy, um, especially when you, you know, obviously need to really get in their face, show them uh, placements, um, possibly mm-hmm. get a better look, you know, where where sometimes doing that oral mech exam might be, you know, a, a little limiting when uh, you're looking at a screen. I'm just, did you come across that as a, as a teletherapist and how do, what's, what kind of workarounds are there? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, a question we get a lot when I'm at conferences and I'm speaking with SLPs, so I really, again, it was, it was a surprise to me that I did not 
find that more challenging when I was working with my students with articulation, with apraxia. Mm-hmm. I absolutely, however, had times when I needed to engage the support person, the paraprofessional who was supporting the services on site. And so if I did have a student where I felt we needed to, for instance, you know, he needed some tactile cueing to be able to initiate a back sound, mm-hmm. I would work with the paraprofessional and explain, okay, this is what we're going to do today. I want you to you know, touch here when we're doing this sound. And I, I think what I found personally is that I moved away, you know, things in my therapy that I thought I had to do, yeah. that I thought I had to do this way. It really challenged me to think a little differently. And I realized that maybe I didn't need to be so reliant on some of those those things I was doing previously as an on-site therapist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I obviously was doing less of that where I may have just very quickly jumped in and done some modeling, some, you know, moving of the articulators or mm-hmm. tongue depressors and using some of those. I wasn't doing as much, but I was finding ways to achieve the same end. And it, and it does necessitate. I mean, we, you have to have really high quality video yes. and you need to be able to see close up and the child needs to be able to see you so they can also see the model. And so that's a very important piece of the technology you're using that that is available. Um, so, you know, again, that, that is a piece of teletherapy that is the most obvious difference than being there in person is that there are there are times working with some students when we do need to engage a support person to whatever the reason is, whether it is for something like that, where we, we need them to help a bit with an oral mech exam or some tactile cueing, or if we have a, we're working with a student with a more significant behavior or attention mm-hmm. issues, and we just need somebody there to help keep up a reinforcement schedule or, you know, whatever the case may be. So yeah, yeah. that that is an important piece of teletherapy is having the appropriate level of support. So you may use, you may use an SLPA. It could also just be a paraprofessional in the classroom mm-hmm. um, that they're helping yeah. you. So I, yeah, I think that's uh, probably key is having someone, a point person you can rely on to help you in case you need to yeah, make those adjustments and say, Oh, you know what? Sure. You know, they're not understanding when I'm saying this, maybe you can help with that. So th- mm-hmm. it's a really good point. Now. Um, so the other, I, I guess the other last question I have for you tonight was where, where, if ever is teletherapy just contraindicated? Good question. And I, I really, in my experience working personally as an SLP and a teletherapist, and then also supervising services, working with many, many clinicians over the years, there is not, there, there is no diagnosis or goal area where I would say to a school um, or a clinician, no, we can't do that via teletherapy. Mm. It is, that's always part of the dynamic assessment is mm-hmm. working, trying it, doing it, seeing how they respond in combination with the level of support that's required. And, you know, ASHA does have a list of 
areas that you need you need to look at to determine the appropriateness, um, and they identify four areas: physical and sensory, cognitive, behavioral, mm-hmm. communication, and then also support services. So those four areas need to be considered. But what what I've really found is that the strongest indicator of success or not being successful with teletherapy is not, not the student, not their diagnosis. It's really the level of support. And so if I'm working with a child who is nonverbal, uses an AAC device, cannot physically access a computer mouse, it's absolutely not appropriate nor ethical to bring that child to the computer and then have that person walk away and just leave them there with their right. therapist, yeah, yeah. with their SLP. That's that that is not I you know could not call that therapy. Yeah. Um, so in that situation, their para will probably need to be engaged that entire session and also with the headset and working in you know in partnership with the SLP. Mm-hmm. So the the model shifts a little bit um, for some students, but. Interestingly, what we also sometimes see is that because of that level of involvement for some of the students who do have higher level needs, is that paraprofessional, that person who is with the student all week long, is learning so much by being a part of these therapy sessions in Mm -hmm. terms of cueing and scaffolding and how to functionally integrate that AAC device into the classroom is that we really begin to see sometimes greater carryover and just functional communication for our students because of the the learning curve and the involvement of their support person. So that, yeah. that can be an exciting thing to see. I, I would think that in that type of situation, um, 90% of your efforts would be to really uh, boost their knowledge, that para's mm-hmm. knowledge of AAC and it really, a lot of it comes down to just appropriate modeling and opportunities throughout the day. So mm-hmm. I, I can see that, whereas, yes, there is a session going on and you're coaching the para, but really at the end of the day, it's the cumulative knowledge that you're giving them that they can use when you're right. not when you're not in session. So, um, right. yeah, I mean, and, and especially I would think that that would be a harder situation, but if the choice is... If you're in a in a rural underserved area that has no access to even an SLPA, and your only mm-hmm. choice is getting that um, contact face to face, you know, from another state or going with nothing, obviously mm-hmm. we, w- I would choose the teletherapy, um, assuming that the therapist has the knowledge and skills to service a population of AAC users. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that'd yeah. be very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything, uh, that I forgot to bring up tonight that you wanted to talk about? (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, I love talking about teletherapy and I, I get a chance to fortunately present at conferences and meet with a lot of SLPs. So I, I'm always so happy to answer questions. Um, you know, one, one thing that I really hope we can do the teletherapy community, can expand on because I think what what's been happening, what's really exciting is that there's 
so much research going on, uh, so much work being done to improve the technology, to look at effectiveness and in all, across all different um, you know, goal areas and disability groups. And so there's tremendous work happening there. What I, where I think we really have a lot of room to grow of, of course, still doing research with all, with all of the areas and where we can be effective, but also in just our communication to our SLP colleagues who are not part of teletherapy, who are working on site in schools, uh, because I, I do still feel that there's somewhat of a divide and in a couple of points is, um, you know, when I, when I get questions, it's usually on two different fronts. One is, you know, how, how could you possibly work with a student who is, you know, has this disability or has this need area? How could that possibly be successful? Mm-hmm. But the other areas, I think that there's still, there exists some fear or concern that teletherapists are threatening the jobs um, of on-site SLPs. Oh, I hadn't and thought about that. It's just, yeah, and it's it's just really not, you know, I we we are one pool of SLPs in yeah. this country, and there's not enough of us. And so teletherapy is really how to bring, you know, therapists to the students they want to work with, and bring therapists to the kids who need it, mm-hmm. and very often about half of the schools that we work with at presence learning, we are working with onsite SLPs. They have onsite SLPs. We are taking part of the caseload. We are collaborating. We are sharing case management um, so that their, their caseloads are, you know, come under a hundred or 90 yeah. And they're not traveling to a school that's an hour and a half away when a teletherapist can reach that school without going anywhere. So yeah. there's there's so many ways I, I really believe for teletherapy to I think it's strengthening our field because what what is most concerning to me is where I have seen states that have in response, I believe, to chronic shortages have changed regulations so that direct therapy services can be provided by non-trained individuals. Uh, so, yeah. And with some sometimes pretty unclear supervision guidelines, even at that. So mm-hmm. rather than that, if we can, you know, really look at teletherapy where we're we're talking about fully certified, qualified, experienced SLPs just providing the service via teletherapy, then we're really, I think, maintaining and even raising the level of services for students across the country um, and dealing with the chronic shortage that way instead of lowering and, and, and promoting our cases. services in a, in a, in a very yeah. good way. I, I think that, uh, yeah, I only see the positives for this. I, I know that, yeah. you know, the future is all this fear about automation and jobs going away. But I, I, in this case, I really don't see that. I don't see a day where school yeah. districts just to hire virtual SLPs all working for mm-hmm. home. Um, I think this is just what it is. It's a, sort of like an adjunct. It's, it's there to just kind mm-hmm. of bolster and fill in some gaps. And, um, yeah, no, I think that's it. So, 
I see kind of a, you know, a positive future of this. And I think there's, you know, just to show the growth, and for those, the audience doesn't know, there's a special interest group on ASHA. Um, yes. I mean, so it, it's grown in popularity. I forget what number is, SIG, whatever. It's uh, 18. 18, so SIG <laughs> <Yeah>. 18. <laughs> So check it out if you haven't already, SIG-18. And and uh, yeah. I know there's been already people who do research on the effectiveness of uh, teletherapy. And I don't I don't know that there's any difference necessarily between face-to-face and teletherapy. At least I haven't seen any studies that show a major difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, right. I think the future is pretty bright for this stuff. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I, I appreciate having the chance to talk about it with you. Yeah. Well, appreciate having you having you coming on the show and are talking about conferences. Are you presenting at ASHA this year? So I am actually speaking at the SIG 18 meeting this year at ASHA. Oh, very nice. And then some colleagues of mine are presenting. So there's, I mean, speaking of the growth in telepractice, I think there's close to 30 sessions this year on telepractice alone at ASHA Mm -hmm. And yes, one of them, um, my colleagues, Kelly Paul and Tammy Radzai are going to be presenting in one of the sessions. So, okay. Yes. We're very excited. We shall look out for that. So, uh, yeah, great. Good luck to you and to, uh, presence learning in the future. Thank you for being on the show. Okay. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was great. I appreciate it. All right. I want to thank Kristen Martinez for taking the time to come on the show today to talk about teletherapy. Don't forget to check out that blog post on speechtherapypd.com, as well as the Presence Learning website. You'll find links to both in the show notes. If you like this podcast and wish to support it, there are two ways you can do so right now. And the other is through an affiliate relationship that I have with MedBridge, which is an online CEU platform. So for those of you who need CEUs for speech pathology, MedBridge is yet another option for you out there. If you sign up through MedBridge and you use the promo code STEPEN, S-T-E-P-E-N, that will provide me with an affiliate commission, which will help me defray some of the costs of doing this podcast. If you take me up on that offer, I appreciate it. Finally, any questions, comments, or concerns can be sent my way, jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'll see you next time.